You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good afternoon, all. Uh, I'm pleased to welcome you to what I think is going to be a wonderful discussion. I'm Jessica Matthews, president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, and we're here to talk about, uh, as we launch, as we see the launch of the Obama 2.0, uh, to talk about arms control 2.0, uh, where we got to in the first administration, uh, why did it get stuck, where do we stand both substantively and politically uh, in both the U.S. and Russia, and perhaps most important, um, what steps uh, might be possible to be taken um, in that context realistically now. And for that, we have a wonderful panel uh, to, uh, to discuss this with you. Um, before I introduce them, I want to, to, to emphasize that what we're um, here to also um, recognize is the, the launch of this policy uh, outlook study that um, was a project funded by the Plowshares Fund. Uh, and the president of the Plowshares Fund is with us today, Joe Cirincioni, and we recognize him and thank Plowshares for its vision on this, I think, enormously interesting and very um, realistic, productive, practical uh, study in a field that too often gets highly um, uh, off in the wild blue. But um, our, our, our panelists today, um, next to me, Steve Piper, who uh, uh, finished a 25-year career in the Foreign Service, um, served uh, in senior positions in the White House, on the National Security Council, in the State Department, in the European Bureau, and as ambassador to Ukraine, uh, focused on these issues throughout his Foreign Service career, and is now the direct senior fellow at Brookings and the director of Brookings Arms Control Initiative. Um, next to him is James Acton, a uh, senior associate here at Carnegie, um, a physicist by training who has spent the last several years thinking deeply about uh, uh, nuclear stability at low numbers um, and at the uh, rethinking of deterrence that uh, is part and parcel of that very long path. Um, he's authored a number of books um, uh, on this subject and, uh, and is the editor um, uh, of, of the study we're, we're looking into today. Next to him is Bridge Colby, uh, who is Principal Analyst and Division Chief in the Global Strategic Affairs Division at the Center for Naval Analysis in its Strategic Initiatives Group. He uh, served uh, on the DOD team, both in the negotiation of New START and in its ratification. So was deeply involved in that, has served as an expert advisor to the Congressional Strategic Posture Commission and as a special assistant in the office of the director of DNI, the DNI, Director of National Intelligence. Um, served also as a member of the President's WMD Commission. So we have three experts who bring very different perspectives on, on this, these issues. And I think what we're going to do is have a, an exchange up here um, and uh, try to divide the time half and half between our conversation and uh, your conversation. So let's, um, let's start 
And, and Steve, maybe you can try to summarize for us, uh, particularly with respect to Russia, uh, post-New Start, where did things stand? Where did the hopes for a successor treaty get blocked? Uh, and where do, we, where do we stand today? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for uh, having thank me on Thank you for being today. here. Um, I think with Russia, the starting point is, I think the Russians on nuclear arms control have been in a holding pattern for the last 18 months. Um, I, I heard from Russian officials as early as late spring of 2011 uh, that they were not prepared to do anything in terms of nuclear arms reductions negotiations beyond New START until 2013. Uh, and the rationale was that they weren't sure it was going to be in the White House now. Uh, and I think their calculation was there was a certain risk from their perspective of getting into another negotiation with the Obama administration. You get two-thirds of the way there, there's an election, and all of a sudden you have somebody in the White House who might go in a very different direction. And, and I think likewise there was probably a pause uh, in their efforts on missile defense. So the question is, what do they want to do now? Uh, and um, I think this is going to be one of the things that will become visible once you have that first senior-level interaction between American officials and Russian officials. Right after the election, uh, President Putin made it clear that he would like to have an early meeting with uh, President Obama. Uh, I think President Obama is, uh, remains interested uh, in pursuing few further nuclear reductions. And the question really is, now that Putin knows who he's going to be dealing with for the next four years, uh, what's his answer to that question going to be? Just before we, we switch to the U.S., I mean, the picture you paint is a bit more positive than it seems... Putin's foreign policy sure. uh, context has been in the last yeah. three, four months. Can give us a sense of your feeling yeah. on that? Oh, first of all, I, I try to be a little bit optimistic by nature, but I, I think there actually are some reasons for the Russians uh, to think about further nuclear reductions. Uh, in the same way that we're looking at how we recapitalize our nuclear forces and how we're going to manage the costs, I think they have some cost issues as well. Uh, if you go back a year ago when President Putin was running for election, he made some fairly significant and expensive pro uh, promises in the social sector. Uh, and if the price of energy, the price of oil, for example, goes down, he may find that he has to make some guns versus butter choices. Uh, I also think that for the Russian military, there are a couple things that they uh, are a little bit nervous about in terms of the New START Treaty. One being that if you look at how the two sides have implemented their reductions, the Russians appear to be taking complete missiles out of service. The U.S. is taking warheads off of missiles, but will still maintain, I think, 700 deployed strategic warheads. And uh, I, under the treaty, the United States would have... Sorry. 700 deployed delivery I'm sorry, 700 deployed uh, strategic delivery vehicles. The United States would have the ability under a new start, if that treaty broke down, to probably add about 1,000 ballistic missile warheads to the force. And the Russians can't replicate at this point. So the question for them is, do they want to build back up and build more capability, which will cost money, or perhaps engage in a second round that might bring the numbers down? So I, I think... Uh, so they know, have some real reasons. I to... think there are some real reasons, and, and I think it's certainly worth a try. I mean, at the end of the day, in six months, we may conclude the Russians are not prepared to another agreement. Uh, but I think we ought to make that push before we write that off. So, Bridget, let's, let's look... Up the other end of the of the uh, avenue, what do you, what do you see in terms of the both the substantive and political context here? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd probably be a little bit more skeptical about about the future or the prospects of a of a successor treaty than than Ambassador Piper. I mean, I, I think the way you know the more sort of skeptical side of of, of the arms control discussion would look at the at the uh, at the question is obviously there are people who are sort of 
reject arms control in toto, and they're not going to be interested in any kind of treaty, and that, that's going to be hard. But that's probably a, a relatively rump uh, uh, a group, given that you saw something like New Start was able to be to be uh, to be implemented. But I think the question, say, just from my own personal perspective, is you know w- what is the what is the value of what, what is what is the sort of national security. Um, Value of a, of a further arms control uh, agreement with Russia. It is it is possible that there are, that there is an arms control agreement, strategic arms control agreement, or tactical arms control agreement to be made with the Russians that would involve reductions on our side. But reductions per se, to me, is 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 the wrong way uh, of looking of looking at it. I mean, uh, you know, to me, and I think James and I have worked on some things together that where, at least in this respect, I think we agree that that you know things like stability. The, improving the stability of the forces, diminishing the possibility of misunderstanding, either in the kind of arms control context or in crisis. Those things are, those things are valuable. Um, I think you're more and more going to get to the question of whether future arms control agreements are driven by the pursuit of the, the goal of a world without nuclear weapons, which is President Obama's stated aspiration as well as, as, well as many other respected figures, or are you going to go for the, this sort of stability uh, uh, model. I think something like New Start, which was a sort of a, a stopgap, um, you know, extension treaty. Effectively, you could kind of elide those differences. But I think going forward, people are going to sort of say, "Well, are you actually going to cut out one leg of the triad if you're going to do substantial reductions?" You know, for instance, the ICBM force, the bomber force, and then that's going to raise stability questions. And politically, it's going to make it harder to do. I kind of think of it as like a trapeze act. Um, you know, that you have to hold the Russians, you have to hold the interagency, and you have to hold the Congress together. And with New START, that barely was, was doable. But I think for future treaties, it's going to be harder because whereas the administration could promise, you know, a very uh, ambitious and, and I think commendable uh, reinvestment scheme for both the strategic delivery vehicles as well as the nuclear enterprise as a whole, that's going to be harder to promise in the future while also making progress, say, on, on disarmament objectives. So I think it just, it just becomes more, more difficult. It's not to say that there aren't strategic arms agreements out there to be made with the Russians. I think there are. But the, but the goal of reductions, I think, is going to be harder to square with other, with other uh, objectives. Okay, James, you're sitting in the middle. You've heard two, two views. What's your, your sense on how, how do you break the logjam? Well, I, you know, the first thing to say is there is at its core... I think, a very deep strategic disagreement between the United States and Russia about what the purpose of arms control should be. Um, you know, the United States is primarily worried about Russian nuclear weapons. Uh, particularly Russian tactical nuclear weapons has been set out as the next priority for the, for, uh, as the priority for the next round, but Russian strategic weapons as well. Russia is primarily worried about U.S. conventional weapons. Um, you know, when, 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 when the Russians put their list of priorities, it's ballistic missile defenses at the top of the list, it's high-precision conventional weapons next on the list. Um, Sometimes the Russians bring up this issue of the upload potential, the US ability to add warheads in storage onto delivery vehicles, Um, and sometimes they don't bring up that. But that's the only nuclear concern with the United States that the Russians even sometimes bring up is this upload potential. And so from a treaty perspective, you know, I, 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 I think there's an awful lot that should be done to make the world, to, uh, you know, to reduce nuclear risks. I think that strategic disagreement is going to make it very, very hard to get to a next treaty, uh, which is unfortunate, but I think, I, th- I think that's the reality. I mean, the one area that I would disagree slightly with Ambassador Pyfron is, you know, I think, I think the budgetary pressures on Russia are smaller than you do. 
And I think the reason for that is, you know, with the Russians very heavily investing in this kind of infamous, new, highly merved, liquid-fueled ICBM, the Russians can get, keep warhead numbers high relatively cheaply. I mean, if you can stick 10 or 12 or 14 or however many they're planning warheads onto a single missile, you can, you can, you can keep your force uh, as really pretty large at relatively low cost. Now, the U.S., for very good reasons, hasn't gone down that route um, and won't go down that route. So I don't see, I don't see the budgetary pressures um, pushing Russia in a reductions direction that it wouldn't otherwise want to go in. Um, and, I think, and, and I think, for me, that forces us to search for uh, a new way forward on arms control, um, one that you know, accepts the works towards the goal of a future treaty, which I still think is absolutely the right goal, but tries to you know, find incremental ways of moving there, um, um, probably outside a treaty-based framework for the time being. What about budgetary pressures here? Does anybody see that as a, as a, as a significant factor? <laughs> I mean, I'll take a stab at that. I mean, I think budgetary issues come up a lot in, in discussions about, about, for instance, getting rid of the, uh, of the triad. But I, I'm, a, I'm less worried. I mean, I think um, when you really pare back, I guess, the, the onion, if you will, of decisions about the future con, uh, you know, constitution of the U.S. strategic force, well, the bombers are going to be built anyway because they're, they're conventional. They're, for the Air Force, you know, they're central to the Air Force's mission. The Air Force is above all primarily in its origin, a strategic bombing organization. And if you make conventional bombers, you can make them nuclear at a relatively incremental cost when you're talking at this, at this scale. Um, whether you have the diversity of bomber forces that you do today with both uh, penetrating and standoff is another issue. I think you should, but, but that's a different issue. The ICBMs themselves, depending on how you move forward with them, um, the, the, the silos are there, the infrastructure is there, uh, the missiles can be built, again, at a relatively inc- incremental cost. If you went into some kind of new... Uh, approach, that would obviously be more expensive, but that's something where, where there's trade space within the decision to maintain that. And by far the most expensive element of the, of the triad is the strategic submarines, but those are, that's also the element of the triad that everybody agrees is the most, the most stable, the most secure, uh, and so forth. And I think when you look at it at the, at the whole, the, the U.S., you know, it seems to me, and this gets into a broader discussion about where are we going to allocate our defense resources in the future, it seems to me that we, th- we probably think we're going to be in an environment with at least some degree of serious strategic risk, and we're not going to want to take the risk of, of, of really downgrading our high-level strategic capabilities, and that includes, includes nuclear. You're more likely to see cost savings, and hopefully we will, from ground forces, from counterinsurgency kind of, kind of assets. And uh, so my, I, I worry less. Of course, I, I think it's important that everybody stay engaged or, or who believes in this, that they, that they make this argument. But I don't see cost as really a genuine, uh, I loathe to use the word legitimate, but, but a, a, an actual um, rationale for, for significant reductions to our force. Okay. Let's, um, let me just say what I should have said at the beginning, which is to invite all three of you to leap in when you want to. But, Steve, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'd be, I, I oh, guess sorry. I'd be a little bit more pessimistic on the cost question, just in terms of thinking, if at the latter half of this decade, in the 2020s, we're building a new ballistic missile submarine, a new ICBM, and a new penetrating bomber, I think that crowds out a lot of the money that would be the Defense Department would for other programs. So you may have to think in um, some... You know, creative ways about capitalization or recapitalization of the force. So, for example, in, instead of building a new ICBM, could you find an, a, a way to extend the life of Minuteman Three? So push that to the right, so you could deconflict it from the time when you're going to be spending lots of money on ballistic missile submarines. So I, I do think there are some cost issues here, uh, and and it does then, if you're looking towards the future force. And again, why uh, I think 
uh, arms control may have a uh, budgetary rationale. Now, if we get to a situation uh, where you figure that you can get by with a few number of ballistic missile submarines, uh, if you get to a situation where you say, okay, this agreement allows the Russians to come down in a way that we're comfortable, where instead of having 400 ICBMs, we only have to maintain 200, you know, potentially, not immediately, but potentially you can have, I think, some fairly major uh, cost savings out there. It's very hard to get the timing of that kind of thing working, though. I mean, I, I, I entirely agree with your budgetary diagnosis. I mean, if you look at what the Pentagon's spending list is, uh, which includes you know, renewing every single aspect of the force, uh, apart from the D-5 ballistic missile, but everything else needs renewing. All of the warheads, almost all of the warheads needs life extending. There's the infrastructure spending. You know, I don't see how the U.S. affords all of that on the timeline that's currently set out. So I, I, you know, I, I, I agree with Steve that I think there's likely to be budgetary pressures. I think it's quite hard, though, unfortunately, to use arms control as a way of budget cutting. I mean, arms control works on a timetable set by the Russians. Budget cutting works on a timetable set by Congress. You might be lucky, and those two timetables might happen to be running in sync. But much more likely, those two timetables won't be running in sync. Couldn't they be, I mean, why could you not plan for them to run in sync? Well, because the administration I mean, doesn't you... right, because the administration doesn't have control of either timetable. I mean, I mean, you can you can you you can write down a plan that involves you know negotiating with Congress at the same time as negotiating with the Russians, but those 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 kind of plans don't always come to fruition. Okay. Well, let's let's uh, unless anybody else wants to say another. I mean, it does seem to me as I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'll put it in my own. That what Steve described is is crowding out the 21st century for 20th century weapon systems and systems designed for a 20th century threat environment, and um, and doesn't really reflect what we're not at yet, but at a at a world where we would recognize that there are choices to be made in the in the defense budget, just as there are in every other budget uh, uh, going ahead. But um, let, let's um, let's turn to the alternatives to negotiating um, an arms control treaty with the Russians, and maybe maybe James, you would just kind of lay out and give an overview of the of the ideas that are in here, and then uh, invite Steve and Bridge to to talk about some of the specifics. Well, I mean, almost from, um, you know, throughout the Obama administration, one of the things that the administration has said is, uh, in addition to arms control, formal treaty-based arms control, uh, we support uh, transparency and confidence building with Russia and with other states as well. And this is something that you hear repeatedly said, but you very often see, uh, you don't often see flesh put on the bone, you know. What kind of confidence building measures? What would their goal be? What kind of transparency measures? What would their goal be? Um, and so as throughout you know, the second half of the Obama administration, uh, first term, um, arms controls with Russia looked like it was getting harder and harder and was getting more and more bogged down. Um, one of the avenues that I wanted to start to explore was uh, for more informal confidence building and transparency measures. Uh, what could be done that would ideally reduce nuclear w- risks while paving the way for, for the next treaty? Um, and what could be done without, uh, outside of a legal-based framework? Uh, there's one idea that's been floating around there a lot really since the ink on New Start was dry, and that was the idea of reciprocal unilateral reductions. Um, That's not an issue we discussed here, but simply because it's been discussed extensively elsewhere. 
Um, and so, you know, I invited a bunch of um, 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 creative thinkers into a room and locked them in the room until they came up with some ideas. Um, I will let Bridge and uh, Steve um, highlight their own ideas. Um, and there's a number of authors, I, I can't see where, where, where you are from the paper, scattered around the room. Um, but let me very briefly highlight two ideas that I think are, are, are worth highlighting, both related to tactical nuclear weapons, uh, of the kind of thing that can be doable uh, in the short term. Uh, the first one is an idea that uh, Jeffrey Lewis contributed to the paper on sea-launched cruise missiles. Uh, the U.S. has uh, announced its intention to dismantle its remaining system of sea-launched cruise missile, nuclear-armed sea-launched cruise missiles. Um, we don't know how many the Russians deploy, or indeed whether they do deploy them. There's, 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 there's ambiguous evidence that I won't go into. But there's fears that Russia might be creating a new generation of nuclear-armed sea-launched cruise missiles. Now, this was a problem that came up in the original START-1 negotiation. And it wasn't dealt with in the treaty text itself, but there was a side transparency agreement for each side to make declarations of the number of nuclear-armed sea-launched cruise missiles uh, it had deployed. Um, and so one step you could very simply take with these systems is just to restart the start transparency arrangement and start redeclaring details about the number of uh, sea-launched cruise missiles that are deployed. Um, a second idea uh, that uh, Ambassador Linton Brooks um, made in his contribution is to start working seriously on joint verification experiments. You know, the U.S. has said, um, and certainly unofficially floated the idea, of a single uh, limit on all warheads. Uh, no matter what type of warhead it is, let's have a single limit. Now, that creates some verification challenges. But one thing you could do is you could have the U.S. and Russia on a reciprocal basis inviting one another into their storage areas with whatever security precautions the host state wants. And see, with those security precautions, can you accurately count the number of warheads um, in, the, in the storage area? Now, presumably in the first instance, the answer will be no. In the first instance, the states may very well insist on dummy warheads. Um, but that would at least get the inspectors there thinking about how to solve this problem in a very practical way. Um, and those are, those are kind of two of the practical measures. Stephen Bridge can talk about their own as well. But that's the kind of thing I think um, uh, it ought to be possible to do. It doesn't require a treaty. Um, and um, it both reduces nuclear risks in the short term uh, and helps create um, pave the way for, for a new treaty in the longer term. Steve, do you want to add? Yeah, I just make a general point, which is um, I don't think we should think about this as arms control has to be a treaty or something else. You can do both. And certainly over the last 40 years, you can find lots of examples of things that the United States, the Soviet Union, Russia did without having a full treaty. So you know, I would argue, I still think there's a chance at getting a treaty. We ought to pursue that. But we can also be pursuing some of these other ideas in parallel. And in fact, uh, you know, the idea that, that uh, James mentioned, you know, if you can do that and, and actually begin to get those measures working, that would actually facilitate achievement of a treaty later on. Uh, the specific idea that, that I offered to James goes to the question of missile defense. And uh, I, I proceed from the premise, I think the Russians have a valid point on missile defense. Uh, and that is, if American missile defenses increase in quantity and increase in quality, at some point, 
they could undermine the strategic offensive balance between the United States and Russia. I think that's just uh, a fact of the offense-defense relationship. Now, I disagree with the Russians when they say that point's going to be hit in the next 10 years. Uh, and, and my suggestion was that the United States could, and I think a lot of this information is, is already publicly available in budget documents, but uh, give to the Russians, uh, and ideally this would be done reciprocally, where the Russians would be giving us a declaration as well, but a declaration that would say, for each year looking at over the next 10 years, for each key element of our missile defense systems, this is the maximum number we plan to have. Uh, so you could, you could take ground-based interceptor missiles, you could break the SM-3 interceptor down by different blocks, launchers, associated radars. So you give them a list of about 15 or 20 elements. And you say, for each year now, we're going to tell you how many we plan to have in that year. And then, moreover, we will give you advance notice if any of those numbers are going to change. So uh, it looks to me like it takes about two years from a decision to build an SM-3 missile to actually having it in the force. So you can tell the Russians, if we're going to increase an SM-3 number, you're going to get 18 to 24 months notice. What that gives the Russians, if they're if they're not just holding up this missile defense thing to, to, to block progress, but if they want to have a real exchange, that gives them a very full picture, updated every year, of what American missile defense will look like, from which they can say, is that going to be a problem for us or not? Now, it requires that the Russians accept that the United States will be pursuing a missile defense, that there will be missile defense elements deployed in places like Romania and Poland, but it is a vehicle by which I think the United States could assure the Russians that looking over the next 10 to 15 years, there is no threat. Now, the crunch point may be you know, 15, 20 years down the road. If there is some missile defense breakthrough, there actually may be a real issue there. But I think that this is a way to tell the Russians there's not going to be the sort of threat that you fear to your strategic forces. And do you see any prospect in this, say, next 10 years for more active actual cooperation on radar or whatever on basing on... Well, my hope is that if you, if you could do something like this, this would be part of a package, uh, and, and then the Russians would have to follow off their demand for a legal guarantee that American missile defenses are not going to be directed at Russia, because in the current climate, there is no way that you could get a two-thirds vote in the Senate for that. Anything that looks remotely like a limit on missile defense is going to be as problematic as uh, raising taxes. Uh, but I think if, if, if the United States offered a bit more transparency, made a couple of other offers, the Russians moved off of that, there's already, from what I understand, a fairly significant degree of convergence in terms of Pentagon ideas and Russian military ideas from exchanges back in 2011, where they talked about things like transparency, joint exercises. They got into fairly detailed conversations right. on this idea of two missile defense centers. One, a data fusion center where you take data from NATO sources and Russian sources combine it, and then send the enhanced product back to both sides. So that would, for example, give the United States access to data from uh, the Russian radar at Armavir, which probably has the best view of Iran, of England's right. radar. So right. that would be valuable. And then a second center that would be planning and operations, where you talk about rules of engagement and how the systems would work together. So it wouldn't be a single system, but it would be two systems working together uh, very closely. If we can't get there, we read all the time that missile defense cooperation is a game changer, both positively and negatively. If we couldn't, couldn't pursue the cooperation you just no. described, do you see Russian willingness to move forward on some of the other, uh, some of the other ideas that, are being, that we're going to be talking about yeah. today? Well, certainly, I think in terms of a, of a new nuclear reductions treaty, I think you probably don't get that without coming up with some settlement of the missile defense issue. 
Uh, there may be some of these other ideas that, that are of interest. Uh, I think one of the ideas was to talk about, for example, uh, cruise missiles and conventional cruise missiles. Uh, I, I was at a meeting in Moscow about uh, two and a half years ago where we heard from several, several Russian think tankers that they were very concerned about the ability of American cruise missiles to attack Russian strategic forces. Right. Now, uh, when I went back, I, I, had, I was then out at the Strategic Command, and I asked some people out there, and they were very dubious about that. They, they did not think that conventional American cruise missiles had the explosive power to have much chance of disabling an ICBM silo. Now, that seems to me, I mean, I, I'm not you know, an explosive expert or an expert in hardened silos, but that seems to be an engineering question. If you got the smart people together, they could actually have a conversation. Is there a real problem here or not? Right. At least what they're thinking out in strategic command is that this Russian problem is really not very serious. Uh, but it's one, as, as James mentioned, they continually raise. Bridge, you want to add the, some of the other ideas that are laid out here? Sure. Well, I think, I think Ambassador Piper just explained our, our uh, James's and my um, proposal uh, very well. And I, I agree with him entirely that a lot of the steps that we can take with, with the Russians um, can be done outside of the treaty framework. And, and I you know, didn't want to set up too much of an opposition between the kind of disarmament versus sort of stability mindset, because there are a lot of things you can do you know, as, if you want to do both, as, as I think James is, a, is a, probably the premier example of somebody who's trying to reconcile those things. Um, you know, you, we don't have to solve all the problems uh, uh, right now. But this is the kind of thing where both sides can gain uh, uh, from the kind of experiment that, uh, that we're talking about, which would basically be to um, probably initially have the, the National Academy of Science of the United States and of the Russian Federation conduct a joint study into looking at the ability of conventional cruise missiles um, uh, to, to uh, damage or destroy uh, a hardened silo. Uh, you could also do it against other targets that would be of concern, like strategic uh, command and control, for instance. Obviously, this has to be made compatible with security requirements on both sides and so forth and so on, but those are the kind of problems that, that you know, are familiar. Um, you know, the advantages to the Russians are relatively clear, and I think Ambassador Piper laid it out, which is to say, well, are our silos... Uh, in danger or, or not to the extent that an experiment like this could, could solve that question. But for us, it's also valuable as well because we do incur something of a political cost by having the Russians kind of delegitimize our use of conventional cruise missiles. This is something that's been a problem for us for a long time. And we would gain politically in the ability of our, of our forces to operate with, that, with less of a kind of political overhang from something like this. Uh, we'd also gain from not having the Russians be on such a, an itchy trigger finger. It's not like they're going to launch a first strike tomorrow. But, you know, all things being equal, we don't want the Russians to think that the appearance of an American attack submarine somewhere in their vicinity means that their, that their uh, survival second strike is, is in jeopardy. That, that benefits us, too. So these are the kinds of kind of common advantage things that we, that we can find, small wins, and whether they lead to something different, um, you know, it doesn't all need to be tied together. We can do this and that and this and that. And in some sense, I think a treaty is, 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 um, you know, is problematic because you do need to try to wrap everything together. And James well pointed out that you know, so the procurement schedules are not on the same time. Ted Warner, my old boss, liked to point out that we're going through a Russian recapitalization period right now. Well, the whole Reagan era buildup, which has not been, not been tended to or not been continued since the end of the Cold War, is now is coming to an end in the 2020s and 2030s. And that's why we have all these things uh, uh, coming, coming online. So um, I think if we can find these sort of smaller wins, that's advantageous. Other things where, you might, where we might find advantages, if we, obviously missile defense is one area, but another is if and when we do move forward with prompt strike, whether you know, global or, or a more regional variety, we don't want the Russians to think that this is something that is oriented to or is highly tailored 
to uh, attacking their, their second strike capability because we're developing it for a range of contingencies. Um, and so if there are things we can do, like segregating the launch point, if it's a land-based system, for instance, um, which I think the Obama administration has already offered as an idea, uh, those are things that are, that are worth pursuing and can be done outside of the treaty context and make sense just on strategic grounds. Um, James, maybe um, this may complicate the story a little bit um, too much, but you've just taken a look at, at the prospects, long-term prospects of China's addition to the bilateral arms control picture. Do you want to just say a few words on, on uh, looking ahead over this coming four years, whether, whether you see any opportunities there? Sure. <clears throat> As U.S. and Russian numbers come down, for whatever reason, as a matter of political reality, China's nuclear arsenal is going to loom larger in uh, American and Russians' minds. And actually, you know, the official Russian position on arms control right now is the next round must be multilateral. And that's primarily about China. Now, is that a negotiating position? Probably. But it's nonetheless you know, significant that you know, even, even at the moment, the Russians are saying China has to be involved in the next round. Um, and, you know, one can argue strategically at what point China ought to be included in arms control. Um, you know, the total U.S. arsenal is still probably a factor of about 20 bigger than the total Chinese arsenal. Um, but, you know, at some point or sooner or later, it's going to have to be dealt with. So the, 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 the issue that I highlighted is so far the U.S. has had relatively little success talking um, state to state with China about nuclear doctrine and nuclear weapons. Um, one can point to a few potential signs of progress, but it's been very tough recently. So one, one, one idea that I put out there in, 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 in a recent publication is to focus on the ways in which instability uh, at the nuclear level can be driven by interactions at the conventional level. You know, let me give you one example. Um, the United States is deploying, let's start from China. China is developing conventional ballistic missiles uh, for regional missions. The United States is deploying theater ballistic missile defenses uh, in the region, partly to deal with those conventional ballistic missiles. But China worries that those theater interceptors could turn into national missile defense interceptors that could undermine China's strategic deterrent. That is one example of how instability at the conventional level can feed up into instability at the nuclear level. There seems to me a clear mutual benefit in, for both the United States and China in mitigating the worst aspect of these instabilities. So rather than trying to kind of pair up U.S. nukes with Chinese nukes and do uh, negotiations or talks or transparency or whatever on that very asymmetric basis... What about trying to do things like transparency about Chinese regional conventional missiles in return for transparency about U.S. theater missile interceptors? That's, that, that's the basic idea there. Does, I don't know if any of either of you wanted to add anything on this point. I, I, I just think, James' point, uh, right now the U.S. and Russian arsenals each are about 20 times the size of the Chinese. So it would seem to me that there, there is room for one more bilateral treaty. Right. I mean, you could cut American and, and, and Russian arsenals in half, and they're still an order of magnitude larger than any third country. Right. Uh, and that pushes down, because I think it, it's hard enough dealing the U.S. and Russia in a bilateral negotiation. 
when you start to bring in third countries, it's going to become much more complex. Let me, before we open it up, let me, let me just circle back with you, Steve, to where we started. There certainly was a period in the recent past where the Russians felt that only a formal arms control negotiation sufficiently recognized their status as a superpower um, or a just was superpower, or let's say <laughs> yeah, yeah. superpower. What, I, do they still feel that way? No, I, I think actually uh, above and beyond the nuclear reductions, the arms control negotiations and that treaty have political importance to Moscow, uh, where you still have many in the elite seeking to see themselves and Moscow as a superpower on par with the United States in the same way it was during the Cold War. So this kind of agreement, I think, has political value because it is a validation that, yes, Russia is a superpower in that one category of nuclear weapons. Right. And they don't have a lot of other categories uh, that they can but point to. With a you argued it doesn't have to be either or. We can do both. Non-treaty, yeah. non-negoti- non-treaty measures and the treaty, formal treaty negotiation. But do the Russians, how, how would they feel about that, that uh, opportunity? Yeah, yeah. I, I think they, they, they prefer the treaty, uh, but you may be able to get some additional measures above and beyond that. Uh, but, but we have seen how much the Russians have liked the treaty. I mean, uh, there have been some arguments made... Uh, that you can only do arms control by treaty, which I think is just wrong and is, is not consistent with the last 40 years. So if you go back, for example, 10 years ago in the, uh, in the Bush 43 administration, when they completed their nuclear posture review, uh, they concluded that the United States needed 1,700 to 2,200 operationally deployed strategic warheads, regardless of what Russia and China did. <laughs> Basically, it was sort of, this is, this is what we need, and we don't care about the rest of the world. Uh, in the fall of 2001, when uh, President Bush was meeting with President Putin, the American proposal was that we don't need formal treaties. Uh, we, why don't we just go out there, and I will say, you know, I, President Bush, will say, this is the number of weapons we have, and then you can say how many Russia's going to have. But arms control by, by mutual statements. Uh, and, in fact, President Putin said no, he wanted to have a treaty. And at right. the end, I think President Bush uh, agreed to that uh, direct appeal from Putin. You want to answer yeah, that and, you know, Steve's point is very important because um, some of you may have seen an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, over, over the Christmas period when, um, in fact, two of the officials in that administration... One of whom had senior responsibility for arms control, by the way. <laughs> um, ..was arguing that exactly that kind of policy that the Bush administration had publicly come out in favour of in 2001 was unconstitutional. Now, I, you know, I, 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 suspect, I suspect if you're like me, you may have been a little bit surprised seeing John Yu write an op-ed about the extreme limits on presidential power in matters of peace and defense. <laughs> but this is, this is clearly a very, very different issue, so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt there. Okay. All right, let's open up the conversation, and please introduce yourself, and we'll start right here. Uh, okay, come on. Thanks. Rachel Oswald, Global Security Newswire. This is for Stephen Piper. I wanted to go back toward your idea about having the United States provide annual declarations of missile defense numbers. Do you see those as being public? And also, given that Russia has called for um, data alongside any legal legal guarantee that would that would ascertain for them capabilities, do you think they would really be okay with just verbal declarations that could be discontinued under a new pres- U.S. presidency that are not accompanied by any kind of um, uh, site visits? And would you also suggest those? Yeah. Well, this is uh, 
one element of what I think would be several offers the United States could make to try to facilitate uh, a cooperative NATO-Russian missile defense. Uh, one, I don't think it's going to be too hard to pull out the numbers. I mean, I, in, in my particular section of the paper, I give 10 numbers. Those numbers I got from a Congressional Research Service document. So I, I think a lot of this information is out there. Uh, second, there are other offers that have already been made on the table. For example, uh, a year ago, the head of the Missile Defense Agency said he would be happy to invite Russian observers to come and observe standard SM-3 missile tests. And his argument being that when they see that, and including using their own equipment to observe the test, they would see that the interceptor does not have either the range or the velocity to engage in a continental ballistic missile. So again, since we're building these systems not designed against the Russians, I think making that kind of information available that would make them more comfortable about the capabilities, you know, and this is actually something in, in many ways, given where the tests are, the Russians could probably do from international waters, but, but sort of facilitating that. Uh, I think there are, there are two other things uh, where I think NATO and American policy might change on missile defense. Uh, one would be is this position which, uh, on the Claronia, that is, if there was a cooperative missile defense, it would not in any way change American and NATO plans for missile defense. And I, I guess I would alter that and say, you know, we would be prepared to consider Russian ideas, provided those ideas did not degrade the ability of NATO missile defenses to defend NATO territory. And I'll give you an example that a Russian raised me at one point. He said, if you look at the plan for phase three of the European phased adaptive approach, uh, the location for or proposed for American missile interceptors in Poland is on the Baltic Sea quite close to Kaliningrad, which has political sensitivities for the Russians. Now, his question was, you know, would NATO ever consider relocating that to a Polish military installation in southwest Poland, which would move it away from Kaliningrad, but also would move it away from ICBM tracks from Russia to the United States. Now, I think, I think NATO's position right now would be no. What I would argue is before saying no, NATO ought to ask itself, could it in that location still be able to defend in the same way NATO territory? And if the answer to that question was yes, then it might be worth thinking about. The other change, and I think there's, there's some ambiguity in this position if you're in Russia, is... Uh, is what we plan to do with phase four. And I would think it would be useful for the administration to make a statement saying that it would not, or it could defer deployment of the phase four SM-3 interceptor, which is the missile interceptor of most concern to Russia because that's the one that's supposed to have capabilities against ICBMs, but that the administration would defer that deployment if it became evident that Iran was not progressing towards an ICBM. I think that makes, I think, the point that the phase four in Europe is linked to an, uh, an Iranian capability. If that capability doesn't develop, you know, then we don't need to deploy that defense, which is the one of greatest concern to the Russians. And again, hopefully those things would then bring the Russians around to moving off their demand for legal guarantee and, and move us into a position where we could actually set up a cooperative defense. I saw a hand right. Yes. Uh, thank you. This question is for James. Uh, Justin Anderson, SAIC. And James, I wanted to uh, press you a, a little on, uh, on something you said earlier. First of all, I agree with your assessment that a problem for arms control is differing strategic assessments between the United States and Russia and Russian concerns about U.S. Uh, a mismatch in things like conventional capabilities. So given that their concerns uh, lie in those areas, I was wondering if you could walk me further as to how transparency and confidence-building measures helps that. It seemed to me that transparency and confidence-building may simply confirm to them 
that they're behind in some areas they consider absolutely vital and doesn't necessarily help us get closer to uh, further nuclear arms control negotiations. Great question. Thanks. Yeah, yeah it, it, it is a great question. And, you know, I actually have written before somewhat heretically that transparency can be a bad thing at times. Um, I mean, the, uh, the best example is the Anglo-German naval arms race before the First World War. I think there's a very strong case to be made that tr that was fueled by transparency. Um, I take the attitude that transparency is generally, st and this is not this is not my dictum. This is actually was a brilliant article, very little known that Steve Fetter wrote on the subject. Transparency is broadly uh, stabilizing when both sides are broadly happy with the status quo, uh, which I think is true between the U.S. and Russia right now. Uh, Russia has concerns about changes in the status quo, but it's broadly happy with the status quo. And, you know, I start from the assumption that where these conventional forces are concerned, the United States cannot undermine Russia's nuclear deterrent. Even if cruise missiles are vulnerable to silos. Sorry, other way around. <laughs> silos are vulnerable to cruise missiles, and I don't think they are. You know, the reality is the most survivable Russian forces are their Rose mobile ballistic missiles. Um, so I think what transparency about things like conventional prompt global strike, about um, uh, cruise missiles, about ballistic missile defense can do is convince Russia, provide Russia with a genuine set of evidence that allows Russia, Russians to judge with their own eyes that U.S. conventional capabilities do not um, degrade uh, Russians' uh, strategic deterrent in any meaningful way. Now, if those studies happen to conclude, I think, extremely unlikely, but you know, one can't rule out the possibility from the start that those studies might actually indicate there is a problem. But in that case, I think it's very important the U.S. knows about it because you know, the fundamental you know, debate about strategic deterrence, I think, is is it a good idea to threaten the other side's strategic forces or not? You know, do I get more out of deterrence or risk instability if I threaten the other side's strategic forces? Now, I come very, very firmly down on the side that we don't want to, thre we don't want to threaten Russia's strategic forces. If Russia believes its strategic forces could be eliminated in a crisis, that is a recipe for deep instability in a crisis. And so, you know, in the very unlikely event these transparency exercises do conclude that Russia's strategic forces are at risk, I think that's something we want to know. But I'm pretty confident it doesn't come out that way. You want to add, did you want to add anything else? Okay. Well, it's more important that Russia knows it, too, right? Because right. they can take corrective action. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. All the way up front? Maybe if you guys stand in the middle, it wouldn't take so long. Greg Thielman, Arms Control Association. The panels have talked about uh, Russia and China in the context of uh, our negotiating partners or potential partners in strategic arms control. But the security concern in the minds of, of many members of Congress and much of the public are Iranian and North Korean nuclear weapons. Um, and in fact, during the New START debates and even subsequently, a lot of the opponents of considering significant reductions are worried about third country or fourth country nuclear challenges. So I guess my question for the panelists is, how does Iran and North Korea, which currently have zero nuclear-tipped ICBMs, how do they play into our thinking about next steps? Or can one 
sort of put that on the table and say, this is not about these countries. This is about Russia and China. Kurt, go ahead. Well, I guess the first thing, and I was going to, thinking of chiming in earlier, um, about, about China, I, you know, I think it's, it's technically true from a numerical point of view, as Ambassador Piper pointed out, that, that, and James as well, that you know, the differences between the United States arsenal and, and China's are very steep. But I think it's also important to recognize that it's at least a debatable point, uh, and it certainly seems, if not, you know, if not the central debate, it's one of the central debates in defense circles right now, is how much of a challenge is, is China posing, and what's the trajectory of the strategic relationship there. And there are those, including myself, who think that nuclear forces may become more salient in the Sino-U.S. relationship as the conventional balance in, um, in the Pacific develops and, and as China's strategic behavior uh, develops as well. So I think it's, it's a very and, – and, and this gets to the point of thinking of, I think, arms control as a strategic action, not a quantitative action um, in the sense that we need to take China's nuclear forces, its conventional forces, its political and strategic behavior into account. So that's – that's a factor in terms of in terms of Iran and North Korea. I mean, I certainly don't think, you know, it's relevant in term in, in again in strict sort of forces terms uh, with respect to to something like the New Start Treaty or, or present present levels uh, or the constitution of the force. Um, where it does come into play, obviously, there's sort of these perceptual things, you know, about the, the the sort of potency of the U.S. extended deterrent. I mean, I'm not too worried about that given the size of our forces, conventional and nuclear and so forth, our willingness to use force. But I do think it is an advantage, and I think I'm sort of clar- maybe taking clarifying a point, at least from my perspective, that James just made, which is that we do have escalation dominance over North Korea and Iran or, or some other power like that, both in a conventional and, uh, God forbid, a, a nuclear context. Um, and that takes something more than just you know, a baseline kind of monad force with a small capability. It takes the high, kind of highly developed force that we, that we have today. And that has a lot of value in assuring our allies and, um, and uh, you know, other countries that would think about proliferating in the wake of the disaster of Iranian uh, acquisition or North Korea's continued uh, possession. So I think it's not a direct kind of thing. Like we, it's not like we rule out um, certainly strategic arms control with either Russia or China. But, I mean, this is, to me, another argument for why we need to have a very strong, robust, capable nuclear force, you know, numbers to be negotiated composition to be negotiated, but we want to maintain that kind of escalation dominance over countries like North Korea and Iran going forward to the extent that we can, while understanding that we exist in, in a different kind of re- relationship with Russia and China. And I would agree with everything that Bridge just said, but, but I would argue that you could, you could do that with substantially fewer U.S. nuclear weapons. Yeah, I, I mean, if, if we went from you know, 5,000 total weapons to 2,000, 2,500, I don't think that that's going to cause a situation where Iran or North Korea would uh, would act in a perceptibly different way uh, towards the United States. Well, can, can I, I think just one 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 thing that's important and that we've kind of been touching around is is the issue between the sort of operational deployed force and what that looks like, particularly with respect to the strategic development or the delivery of vehicles of any kind, strategic or attack or non-strategic, and then the whole warhead, the whole yeah, force. Yeah. And I, for one, I mean, I think there's no reason why we can't think about reducing. I mean, we may want to, we're already reducing the overall uh, stockpile for cost purposes. So there's no, there's no reason why we shouldn't consider that also in an arms control agreement. And, and, and James, James chaired a, co-chaired a, a working group on U.S.-Russia nuclear relations about a year ago that, and, that I participated in that proposed, you know, overall warhead totals as, as a ceiling as, as, a, as a viable way forward. And I think that's perfectly you want to add something? Yeah, look, I I just say very briefly. 
Personally, you know, I don't know how easy or difficult it would be to deter a nuclear-armed Iran. Um, I'm relatively, you know, I would argue strongly that our ability to deter Iran, a nuclear-armed Iran or otherwise is not very dependent at all on the size of the U.S. force. However, I think it would be naive to think that if Iran tests a nuclear weapon, there won't be tremendous knock-on effects for arms control. I mean, just for pure domestic political reasons. Um, I, I, I find it almost unimaginable that you could take, just for, as I say, for, for, for pure political reasons, to, take, to make any progress on arms control for years after Iran tested a nuclear weapon, which is why I think, you know, one, if you want to be serious about arms control and disarmament is, a, you know, politically you have to be serious about non-proliferation as well. Okay. Uh, I'll come back. I read one in the back right there and then, and then Andrew up here. You see where? Put your hand up. Yeah. Uh, Wayne Mary, the American Foreign Policy Council. Following up on Greg Thielman's question, I must say that I'm struck by that a discussion of arms control in the second Obama term has been in terms that are, would have been quite familiar when Richard Nixon was president. And I would think that most Americans, certainly most people in the Congress, would feel that uh, the next four years, the problems uh, in arms control are likely to be very different things related to the arms race between India and Pakistan potential uh, proliferation of chemical weapons from the Syrian arsenal, uh, the kinds of things that we've seen at a conventional level from the disintegration of Libya, uh, and that arms control in the four years ahead are much more likely to be about issues of that kind than about the comparatively stable relationship that exists between the United States and the Russian Federation. Uh, and I'm wondering if perhaps... Um, there may have been a bit of mismarketing of this session uh, that this is really about American-Russian arms control. But I would like to ask the members of the panel to at least discuss uh, what they think is the potential influence of the United States in some of these other issues, because the message I'm taking away is that except in these kind of classic Cold War arms control areas, the message may be that the United States really may not have much influence or suasion. Who wants to leap in there? Well, I'll, since you know, I'll, I'll defend. I mean, I, I, I think uh, I think I think it's a little bit unfair the way you, the way you phrase phrase the question. I mean, there's there seem to be two points you're making, if I understand you correctly. One is we're paying too much attention to Russia. The other is we're kind of engaging in old think. Uh, you know, and then there's sort of a broader point as to whether we can do a number of, of different things at the same time. I mean, to me, it, this critique of sort of strategic arms control of the Russians has never made much sense. We have a huge government bureaucracy. Um, we can certainly afford a certain number of people and their, and their time and maybe some TDY expenses to do negotiations with the Russians if it, if it has some kind of even modest uh, advantages. I don't think that's a reason not to do it. We can, we can do multiple things uh, at the same time. Um, in terms of, you know, dealing with the Russians, you know, clearly they, they are not number one on the priority agenda list for the United States. They are, they are close to it. And I think, actually, in the last few years, we, there are reasons to, think, to be a little more worried about the Russians, not just on the political level and sort of the geopolitical level, but also sort of on some of the military developments. They have made more progress in the transformation of their military capabilities. They do seem to be uh, resentful in a number of ways, sometimes with some justification revanchist on certain areas. So it's something that we should watch. And if we can allay or uh, mitigate some of those dangers, 
um, uh, you know, by, by dealing with them, then I think, I think it's a good reason to do so. In terms of the sort of old thing, thing I, I, I very much disagree. I mean, in terms of, if I understand you correctly, um, you know, Cold War thinking, quote unquote, and, and it's a, you know, people are very fond of, of bashing it. You know, it, it, the Soviet threat to the United States and to Western Europe posed a very intense form of what is essentially a generalizable strategic problem and one that, that we, we see elements of potentially in the Pacific today. And you certainly see in the, in the Sino, uh, excuse me, in the Indo-Pakistani context where, for instance, a lot of people draw parallels to Pakistani thinking to American strategic thinking of the 1950s. So in the attempt to apply these kind of strategic concepts that were developed in this very intense pressure cooker strategic environment in the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, I think it has a lot of value. Um, and uh, I think it's, that's what I think we're all at least trying to do in terms of applying these, these ways of thinking to, to various different problems. Maybe I didn't understand your question, but that's, no, that's I, how I took it. You wanted to add something? Yeah, well, let me, I mean, both answer your question and push back against a bit of a, against the premise. I think in terms of public policy, when we consider what problems are urgent, we have to look at risk. And risk is probability times consequence. Now, nuclear war, thank God, is a low probability event. It's an extremely low probability event. It's also an extremely high consequence event. And to my mind, that makes this an important subject to deal with because the overall risk is still high, in my judgment, even if the probability is low because the consequences are so high. And when we're thinking about a deep crisis, which is the only circumstance in which the deliberate use of nuclear weapons would be imaginable, when we're thinking about a deep crisis, I actually think the classical theory of arms control is the best guide we have to reducing the probability of nuclear use in that deep crisis. So yes, the probability of a US-Russia crisis has dramatically lowered since the Cold War, and we should be very grateful for that. But given the consequences, I think we still need to be attentive to what would happen in that kind of crisis. In terms of what are other arms control problems, um, you know, Iran is one that has been discussed extensively. I would just flag it up. I think in the DPRK in North Korea, I would highlight the crucial issue of preventing the onwards proliferation of nuclear materials and technology from the DPRK. Um, I think there's very little the U.S. can do to disarm or demil- uh, uh, to disarm North Korea. I think there might be much more the U.S. can potentially do in preventing the onwards proliferation. Um, you know, a lot of the difficulty is when it comes to these nuclear arms control problems, and that's, you know, I won't talk about others because I don't know about them very much. Actually, the U.S., I think, has relatively little influence in that regard. Um, you know, the U.S. has been trying to talk to China, and, you know, I don't think U.S. policy in this direction has been perfect, but I think when you look at where the barriers to progress has been, China has been very, very resistant to engaging in a dialogue with the U.S., so there's not much you can do there. I think there is very little that the U.S. can do with India-Pakistan, and I don't know if George is still here, my boss, George Berkovich, but one of the points he always makes is that actually U.S. policy is making the problems with Pakistan significantly worse at the moment. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of arms control problems out there. I think those that don't directly involve the U.S., and even some of those that do directly involve the U.S., there is a limit to what the U.S. can reasonably do. And, um, you know, as, 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 as challenging as I think U.S.-Russia is, I actually think there are opportunities for progress there. And making progress in areas where there are opportunities for progress, I don't think is a bad thing. I think I would just wrap this up and say that 
the, the lesson, one of the lessons of the last 30 years has been over and over again that, that vertical arms control, U.S., Russian, and horizontal arms control, nonproliferation, do not exist in separate universes. They intersect all the time. Um, Andrew, go ahead. Following up, Jessica, Andrew Pierre, on horizontal arms control. We've had an interesting discussion, I think, of China. Uh, but interestingly, also, we haven't discussed the, the two countries which have the greatest nuclear forces after the United States and Russia, and that is Britain and France. And each of these countries, as particularly in Britain, as James knows well, there has been, for now, some time, some discussion uh, about the future of the British nuclear force. The French are more confident about uh, maintaining their nuclear forces, but they have very severe budgetary constraints. They can't even fly their own forces into Mali. So I think the British and French, I've always thought of as being not the next round of arms control, perhaps the round after that. Uh, Maybe we'll have to merge that all into one round many years from now. So I'd like to ask the thoughts of anybody, but perhaps on Britain, um, James in particular, about how this fits in. We've talked about every other potential nuclear power. I don't think the word Israeli, the name Israeli has been mentioned. Um, And if one talks to strategic thinkers and planners in the Middle East, certainly they're very conscious of the Israeli capabilities. And how does that fit into this broad picture which we're now sort of engaged in? Another quick question. Who wants to? Steve, do you want to start? Or James, you want to? I mean, I I think um, when you look at the next step, you know, and and there's the question. I I would hope that you could have one more U.S.-Russia bilateral agreement. But then I think at that point, at least from what I've heard Russians say, is below 1,000 deployed strategic warheads, they have to have something from third countries. Uh, And so I, I think that you would at that point have to bring in, you know, not just China, but Britain and France. And then the question becomes perhaps in the sense of getting them a little bit pregnant, could you get them to accept, okay, as a starting point, you know, maybe a unilateral policy that we will not increase. Uh, and you, I think the British are probably prepared to go along with that. They've said some things like that. I think the Chinese and the French are going to be much more difficult. In the ideal world, you would get India, Pakistan, Israel in that as well. But if you could start with those three countries, you know, then you have the basis from the UN Security Council, P5, to go to work. Uh, but I think it's going to be a gradual process. And, and the trick is going to be finding some way to avoid where I think the Chinese at one point said, you know, we're prepared to join in an arms control negotiation with the United States and Russia as soon as you get down to our levels. Uh, I don't think that idea flies either in Moscow or Washington. So can you find some way to bring them into the process by basically saying, you know, you need to make some commitment in terms of the size of your force if the United States and Russia are going to reduce further. James. Um, A few quick thoughts. Firstly, in terms of formal sit-around-the-table negotiating type arms control, I think it's pretty clear you have to go from two to to five. The Chinese don't sit there unless the British and French are there. Um, I don't think we need to go to that in the near future. I think there's a lot we can do informally. Um, The British talk quite a good game uh, and say, you know, they're willing to be involved at some point. But when you push British officials for details, they're a little bit more uh, circumspect. When you talk to French officials, you get a very simple reaction. No. (laughs) (laughs) Pourquoi? With with a shrug, Um, right? With a shrug. shrug. Um, It's tricky. The huge issue, though, is all in the UK 
there is the potential in the next two years for tremendous, tremendous change in British nuclear forces. And it is all about Scottish independence. Uh, in October 2014, and this is only gradually beginning to permeate through the nuclear community, there is going to be a referendum for Scottish independence. I don't know whether, what the probability is that Scotland is going to vote for independence, but I always say, look, it's not as high as 50%, but it's a hell of a lot higher than 5%. Where it is between 5 and 50%, I don't know. Um, the SNP, the Scottish National Party, has made it, have said repeatedly, time and time and time again, that if Scotland votes for independence, uh, British nuclear weapons will be removed from Scotland as soon as is safe. And there was some speculation that they were kind of, you know, they wouldn't insist on that in independence negotiations. But they have made it impossible for themselves, I think at this point, to allow British nukes to stay in Scotland in the event of Scottish independence. And that is virtually the whole ship. Sh- like, that is, that is the, uh, the four SS, British SSBNs are based there. And mo- much more importantly, at uh, Coolport, the Royal Armaments Depot, there's the missiles and the warhead stored there. Okay? There is no plan for what happens if they're removed from Scotland. Okay? There is... I mean, it is just... British officials cry when you bring the subject <laughs> up. I mean, I cannot emphasise how difficult and expensive replacing these facilities would be. The most plausible plan, which I still think is deeply implausible and won't happen, is to base it all in Kings Bay, Georgia. I think that is the easiest solution, but easiest solution still means extremely hard. So watch domestic Scottish politics, which I know everyone here does avidly. Yeah, but but there's also, I mean, I I think there's a a cost too, because if um, Scotland does vote uh, to leave the Union and the British try to come up with an answer that is other than basing at King's Bay, the cost at that point of Britain sustaining an independent nuclear deterrent suck up the entire British defense budget. And that has ramifications for us. I mean, personally, I'm comfortable with the idea of Britain having an independent nuclear deterrent, but I also want the British to have a deployable conventional capability because, one, when you talk to the U.S. military, it's the British military that they work most comfortably with, most experienced, think in like terms, and it's been Britain that over the last three, four, or five decades has been most willing to go to places and fight with us. So from an American perspective, you know, do, we don't want to see a situation where an independent nuclear deterrent in Britain basically makes it where the British can't ever go any way in a conventional way with us. Right. In the way back. Um, Howard Moreland, private citizen. Um, I'm always interested in targets. I want somebody to tell, show me a list of targets that the United States plans to destroy with nuclear weapons. And these are targets that cannot be destroyed in any other manner and that we have to be able to destroy them. Like uh, if it's a Russian missile silos, under what circumstances do we want to destroy a Russian missile silo, period? Um, I understand you probably can't do it without a nuclear warhead. But I'd like to know what it is, what kind of capability it is we're trying to preserve in a world in which we're not really enemies with either Russia or China. I mean, during the Cold War, Russia was not financing our national debt. We've got a whole different world now, and yet we still have this Cold War mentality. And I'd like to know what kind of capability it it is we're trying to preserve with our nuclear arsenal. And if there are no targets that require nuclear weapons, why are we even trying to preserve 
our nu nuclear arsenal at all. Go ahead, Bridge. Yeah, well, that's uh, you know a legitimate question. Obviously, in seminars like this, you, you end up talking in a very kind of um, sort of ethereal or, or bloodless bloodless tone. But I mean, look, you know. I don't speak, obviously, for the U.S. government, but officially the U.S. government, when it talks about these things to the extent that it does, and nobody knows really what's in the, in the, in the war plan who, who doesn't have access to it, which is a very small number of people, they tend to talk about, about military or quasi-military targets. But look, the reality of the, of the nuclear force is that it, it presents the, the very real possibility, and if they're used, the essential certainty of large-scale devastation, you know, which, uh, I mean, a lot of the, the, the targets, I think it's fair to say, Fair to, fair to assume, based on open sources, work by Desmond Ball and people like that, that that would include urban targets, the cities, um, you know, what, what are called in the bloodless terminology of strategic theory, value targets. And that's what distinguishes nuclear weapons. I think the United States, we feel uncomfortable talking about that bluntly. Um, and, you know, there's sort of an interesting dichotomy where, at least during the Cold War, it was often the left that emphasized the, the, the focus on value targets and the right on, on forces. But I think that that's essentially what what American, American uh, nuclear forces and the nuclear forces of other countries are, are for. Um, so when, you know, I think you're approaching the question, as, I under, as I'm kind of hearing it, in, in a way that, that I wouldn't, which is to say, well, if there are military targets that we can hit with conventional forces, then that means that we don't need nuclear weapons anymore. And that's somebody, somebody like General Cartwright seem, seems, as I understand it, seems to approach it from, from, uh, from, from that point of view. And this gets to the, the, the second issue that you brought up, which is that do we live in a different world? If you, we live in a radically different world from all the, of human history that preceded 1991, where you know, up, up until 1991 it was not necessarily likely, but it was certainly plausible that, that major general war would break out in the European theater. Uh, if we live in a completely different world, and, that, and such a world could not arise within the or reemerge within the next few decades, m maybe you're right. Maybe, that's the, maybe, maybe we should get rid of all, all of those big nuclear weapons and just have weapons that are useful against fanatics like al-Qaeda. I personally am not at all ready to take that bet. Uh, and when you're thinking about the, the, the future of the nuclear force, I think you inevitably need to take into account uh, decades because of the cost, because of the procurement, because of the research and development. I think that the world is... I, I, I think it's people at uh, Mike Azenko at Z CFR point out that the world is much safer than it has been before. I think that's absolutely right. The world of the 20th century was extraordinarily unsafe. But nonetheless, it's not perfectly safe. It's quite unsafe in certain respects. And it could become less safe. And I think one of the I actually think the determining, uh, uh, or the, deter the main determinant that has made the world so safe is the kind of caution-inducing effects of nuclear weapons. So I think going down the road that you're suggesting would be by far the riskiest, uh, the riskiest uh, direction. That's why we need to maintain such a strong nuclear force. Can I make a, sure. I had just three brief points. One, I, I think we have more nuclear weapons than we need to have a reliable and effective deterrent. Two, if in fact you could look at uh, the requirements, uh, the policies that drive both the United States and Russia now to say that they need 1,550 deployed strategic warheads, you would likely see targeting requirements that probably aren't much different from what they were 30 years ago. Uh, the third point is there is underway, or has been underway for some time, this nuclear posture review implementation study uh, being done by the president, uh, at which point you know, he will articulate what he thinks needs to be done in terms of targeting and what sort of nuclear forces he needs to, uh, uh, he believes the United States needs to have to have an effective deterrent. And, and I hope that, they, that in this process they are looking at some of these questions. You know, one question I would ask is, I assume, I don't know, I've never seen the targeting list, but I would assume that Russian ICBM silos are targeted. Uh, question I would ask is why? 
because I see three scenarios. One, the Russians launch a bolt from the blue, in which case, if we launch back at their silos, the silos are empty. They can't use them two, again. Two, <laughs> two, there's a crisis, in which case the Russians have generated their forces, they're on alert, and they likely launch on warning. Three, the where it makes sense is the United States launches a bolt from the blue, which I don't think we're going to do. So in those kinds of questions, you know, do, does targeting Russian silos, uh, which I assume we do, make sense? And I'm hoping that that kind of fundamental relook is going, because I think that's what you may need to come up with a rationale for perhaps a significantly reduced force. Can I just point, I mean, I, I actually agree. I mean, I think that there's a very strong case to be made not to target uh, certainly Russian silos, but that does suggest that, that what is left to be targeted are... are I mean, essentially, if you immunize the strategic forces and the command and control capabilities, which I think is, generally speaking, a good idea, you are left with, certainly with the general war plan, you're left with, with what, are called, what are called value targets. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, they're intermediate targets, general purpose forces, and that kind of thing. But, but I think that, that you know, th there's no getting away, ultimately, from that, the moral difficulty of that problem. All right. Um, gonna, we have time for two last questions right there and right here. And then I'll also give panelists a chance to... Last word, if they want. Uh, Stephen Young with the Union of Concerned Scientists. I appreciate very much the very reasonable discussion we've had here today. My question is, how do we deal with, I think, the unreasonable actor in the room, which is the U.S. House, uh, which is calling for a study on deploying ground-based systems in the East Coast, even though the National Academy says they don't work. That's calling for a study on China, arguing the tunnels will allow China to have a far larger nuclear arsenal than anyone else believes is possible. Do we just ignore the House going forward? What do we do in a situation where the House is causing us to take actions that make no logical sense. Okay, and then let's let's take Jan up here, and then I'll give you Jen. Jan Lodl. Um, a quick point about uh, Steve's very good uh, comments on ballistic missile defense. Uh, actually, I, I think it's the case that uh, if you stopped it at phase three and the SN3, that uh, you limit the, the velocity to five kilometers per second, which actually the Russians agreed to in 19, whenever it was. Uh, 1997. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, I think there is some room there for uh, something if the U.S. is prepared to, to even conditionally set that as a limit. Um, but uh, more broadly, uh, none of you have mentioned President Obama's Prague initiative. Uh, he's indicated privately to some people that he's still very committed to it and wants to try to he knows he's not going to achieve it in his term. He's already said that, but he wants to try to open some kind of viable path uh, toward uh, uh, eventual elimination and zero. And I guess the question is whether, whether you feel that uh, the things that you're talking about are reasonable steps uh, to accomplish that or whether there's something that uh, you would have to add to uh, this agenda if, uh, uh, if one wanted to be serious about that. Another great question. Is there anything left of the Prague Agenda? Um, who would like to, to start on, on both points? Yeah. I'll go first. Um, you know, in, in answer to Stephen's question, um, I think the way forward, you know, when you look at nuclear weapons spending, it seems to me that the position that you know, all of the shopping list has to be done is unreasonable because I don't think it's possible. And equally well, the position that everything has to be opposed and none of it has to be done, I think, is an unreasonable position. So in terms of moving forward, you know, I think the issue for me is, can the United States create a consensus on 
spending on the most stabilizing parts of the nuclear force in return for arms control. Now, the irony is, I think the biggest threat to the nuclear weapons budget is Tea Party members of the House of Representatives. Um, which means then that there has to be a consensus between Democrats in the House, uh, who are generally in favor of arms control and disarmament measures, um, with people like the labs. Um, and we are, one of the questions I'm asking myself is, can you create a consensus in which both sides feel it's better than not having that consensus in place on you know, disarmament and arms control going hand in hand with sensible spending on you know, the most stabilizing parts of the nuclear force. Um, I don't know that's possible, but that seems to me the, 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 the way forward. Um, in answer to uh, Jan's question, um, yeah, I wish I had people who could tell me what was in President Obama's mind. Um, but, um, you know, I think everything there, you know, every one of the suggestions that have been named there advances the prospect of a world without nuclear weapons. What I want to emphasize is it's also supportable by people who don't believe that is the final goal. Because every one of those measures there, I believe, enhances US national security in and of their own right. And right now, you know, I think there is so much that can be done, not just in terms of the measures listed here. There's plenty of other measures. There's new arms control agreements. And in terms of kind of forging the consensus, I actually think it's important right now not to make people choose between being disarmers and um, nuclear weapons people. Um, I, think, I think there's so many measures that you know, are a good idea in and of themselves because they enhance US national security and the security of US allies, that right now it's not necessary to kind of identify, and actually unhelpful to identify, particular measures that are purely directed towards the goal of zero because there's so much that people ought to be able to agree on, even if you think zero is a bad idea. Okay, a few comments. One, again, I think um, you know, if, if the president wants to pursue his vision, he's already articulated what the next step was, and that was back in 2010, where he said he wants to pursue another treaty. Um, I think there's a shot at a treaty. It may turn out that the Russians are not prepared to deal, but I think the, the, the logical step for the president is to try to push and test the hypothesis as to whether the Russians are prepared to do an agreement that goes beyond New START. And that, though, can be done in conjunction with pursuing the various other steps that we've talked about here. Again, it's not either or. Uh, second, I, I would agree completely with James's point. If, um, you know, if the re Democrats in Congress could organize themselves in the way that the Republicans were organized in the debate over New START, where they went to the administration and said, in order to get the votes you need for New START treaty ratification, you have to make these commitments to strategic modernization. If the Democrats could organize themselves so they could go to the Republicans and say, if you want our support for strategic modernization, you have to make these commitments to sensible arms control, you could get a virtual virtuous cycle. And I say this as one who's closer to the Democratic side than the Republican side. I'm not sure the Democrats can organize themselves that way, but it would be useful. Uh, finally, the last point, I think, though, how Congress plays here, um, and, it, it, and this really is on the Senate, um, if the Senate begins to draw some, or if groups in the Senate begin to draw very hard lines that suggest that no treaty that an Obama administration could negotiate is going to be ratified, uh, then I think what the Senate is going to do is push the administration to look at these other ways, basically go around it. Uh, so I, I think there is a certain risk there. I mean, again, I, I think 
in the ideal world, the treaty is probably the best way to go. But if you can't get a treaty either because the Russians aren't prepared to negotiate one, or if because you're persuaded that there's no way the Senate would ever consent to ratification of one, then you're going to look at steps less than treaties to advance the agenda. Last, last word? Sure, yeah. On the, on the first question, um, I mean, I, I think it's somewhat, somewhat unfair. I mean, the, the, the deal was there, right, the, the, in, in connection with the New Start, New Start Treaty, and I think James pointed out, that, or Ambassador Piper, that it was exhaustively negotiated. As, that was essentially the deal um, in exchange for the New Start Treaty, which, is, which you know, I think both made sense. But the, the most important part of that, from my perspective, was the modernization of the strategic forces. And that, I think there's a sense, uh, you know, on the right side of the spectrum that that, that commitment has not been honored. Now, people like, like Jeffrey Lewis point out that the Budget Control Act intervenes and that the Tea Party, et cetera, et cetera. All of these have, there's validity to that, that point. But I think the fundamental way to look at it is, look, there are people out there who hate arms control and, never, and think arms control is treasonous and will never be a good idea. Okay, you're not going to bring them over. But you can, if you can bring people like Bob Corker and uh, Johnny Isaacson and Lamar Alexander over like you did in the, in the New Start uh, negotiations, then that forms a lasting consensus, which was the most valuable product of the New Start uh, agreement, which, which I think it's also tragic that that seems not to have carried over, at least in a... In a, in, a, in, a, in a potent way. And that, that I think, if, if there's that focus on modernizing, I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure what James means by the stabilizing elements of the triad, but I think the, the, the nuclear enterprise as it exists maybe narrowed a little bit and, again, maybe stretched over a long period of time. Obviously, I'm conscious of the budget considerations, things like the ICBM. Maybe you, did, you, you do what you did with the submarines and you stretch it a little bit more than you initially anticipated. But I think that, that is the basic deal. We have, we have a, a strong uh, nuclear triad. We have a strong uh, lab complex and so forth. And, and then we have, we have arms control, and we look for ways to minimize nuclear dangers and, and instability. Um, on you know, on the, the, uh, President Obama's agenda, you know, it's interesting. I spent a couple of, the first couple of years of the Obama administration trying to figure out who was the main driver of the administration behind the zero agenda, because I looked at a lot of the people in the Pentagon, and I was like, well, they don't seem like you know, real zero people. And then I thought, oh, maybe it's the president. Yeah. And I think, yeah. <laughs> I, think there's, I think it's actually true. Uh, yeah. And I think it that actually, took several years. It's, I, I'm, I'm not that bright, so it's a little slow. I, uh, um, the uh, the uh, um, but what I think that it, one interesting aspect of that is how committed he is to nonproliferation. I think James touched on that, where he said that those who support arms control are also the people who need to be really vehement on on nonproliferation. And James and I were out in uh, visiting the national test site about a year and a half ago, and we were in the car, and we, we came up with a, a, a way of dividing the kind of, or, or charting nuclear policy disputes. And there's a more traditional Cold War one, which is how hard or how easy is deterrence. But there's also one, the, the y-axis you could call it, which is how stable is the nuclear order. And I think the president is pretty low, if you will, on the axis in the sense that he thinks it's pretty unstable. And that's why, you know, I, I tend to be a little bit more, or a little less, um, I think the deterrence could work against Iran, but it doesn't seem like the president thinks that in, in large part, as he said, I think in his interview, I think it was with Jeffrey Goldberg, that, that you'd see uh, a proliferation uh, ensue. So I, I think he seems to be very committed. I think things like this make a lot of sense. That said, it seems to me zero has sort of exhausted itself after about five years of being at the top of the agenda. Um, you know, obviously, it'll come back because it speaks to some moral intuition on the, on the part of large, large numbers of people. Um, but then what takes its place? I mean, my candidate would be something like strategic stability, uh, which obviously is something, something some people think of as old think. But, uh, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't see zero making huge inroads. Uh, even if there is another agreement with the Russians, it's likely to be incremental. Uh, uh, so uh, 
So, I, you know, a little more of a pessimistic outlook. Or at least All right. I, you know, this conversation, I think, has done the, the most that you can ask for um, uh, this kind of thing. It's, it's brought some important new ideas um, in front of us. It's, uh, it's sparked a really interesting conversation, and it's opened some new questions. So I want to thank um, both our panelists and the other authors, uh, present and absent, um, Plowshares for, for making this possible, and all of you for, uh, for making it happen. But in particular to the panel, thank you so much. Thank you.